Hello, everyone. My name is Andres Velasco. I'm the Dean of the School of Public Policy at the London School of Economics. And I want to welcome everyone <clears throat> to this event in which we are very, very happy to be joined by Farid Zakaria. This is one more in LSE's um, long list of events this year, many of which, not all of which, have had to do with the subject of the year, uh, COVID, of course. Uh, I am delighted uh, in particular to welcome Farid, who is a dear friend and is someone who does not need much of an introduction. Um, as I'm sure everybody here on this call knows, Farid uh, hosts uh, Farid Zakaria GPS, which is an international affairs program that airs on CNN. He is also a columnist for the Washington Post and a contributing editor for uh, The Atlantic, the magazine in the US. In 2019, foreign policy named him a top 10 global thinker of the last 10 years. Farid is a fellow Yaley. He earned a bachelor's degree from Yale University and a PhD in political science from Harvard. He's written a bunch of books in defense of a liberal education and in 2015, The Post-American World in 2008, and my personal favorite, The Future of Freedom, a study of illiberal democracy around the world. And that book was published back in 2003. And of course, Farid is joining us today to discuss his most recent book, uh, the title of which is 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. Farid, welcome and thank you for joining us. The uh, rules of our conversation, the rules of engagement are as follows. We're going to uh, give Farid about 15 minutes flexible so that he can tell us a bit about the book and the main uh, points of the book. Then we will have an informal conversation and then we will be happy to open it up for Q&A with uh, the audience, which is looking like a pretty numerous audience uh, with people joining from all corners of the world. So Farid, uh, without further ado, over to you. And again, thanks for joining us. Andres, uh, this is a huge pleasure for me. I have actually uh, been to the LSC uh, to launch every one of my books. And so this follows in a great tradition. Uh, in fact, I, the LSC, I, I, have, I have a special place in my heart for it because my father came to the LSC as a scholarship student uh, in 1944 in the middle of World War II uh, to get a, uh, what he thought was going to be a PhD with uh, Harold Lasky, the great uh, social democratic uh, intellectual. Uh, Lasky, in fact, told him that he was not really an economist. He was more of a, a historian and sent him off to SOAS, which is where he did get his PhD. Um, but as a result, I've always had a, a soft spot for the LSE. And so it's a thrill and an honor to be here. Um, what I thought I'd do is begin, as you said, by just outlining a few of the central themes that I want to uh, talk about, and then we can go in whatever direction uh, the audience would like. And by the way, if people want to ask questions that are unrelated to the book, uh, I know that there's an event taking place in the United States uh, next Tuesday that there might be some, uh, some sc scattered interest in. I'd be happy to talk about that as well. Um, to me, the most striking thing about 
uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic is the degree to which it really is probably the most universal crisis that has faced us. Uh, if you think about it, I was talking to an Indian businessman once about 9-11 and the global financial crisis, and he pointed out that his life didn't change much at all. That 9-11 was an event involving the United States and the Middle East, some Middle Eastern countries. Uh, you know, it changed a little bit of the airport procedures for much of the world, uh, but that was it. Uh, the global financial crisis, he said he never had any leveraged products. He never had derivatives of any kind, as did most true of most Indian businesses. So, you know, there was a small, there was a decline in demand as a result of the recession, but not, not much. This pandemic, I think has, it can almost literally be said, has affected every human being on the planet. Everybody's life in some way or the other has been changed by either the public health crisis or the economic crisis that followed this extraordinary uh, process of shutdowns. I, call, I kind of call it the great paralysis because we literally froze economic activity around the world. And so it, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book because it made me realize there's something very large that is going to unravel and unfold as we go through it. And let me try to sketch some of the outlines of it. We can talk about the countries that did well and the countries that did poorly and what lessons we can draw from that. But to me, the, the larger lesson I got um, was that we have been living life um, and developing in a way that has taken on greater and greater speed, greater and greater acceleration and greater and greater risks without seeming to be quite aware of those risks, let alone mitigating them. So if you look at you know, what has happened over the last 20 years, as I say, you've had this great geopolitical shock, 9-11, the great geoeconomic shock, the global financial crisis, and now a great biological shock or public health shock. Um, and they're all part of uh, a larger narrative, I think, which is we have been running the world or we have created a system that runs very fast, is very open, but is quite unstable. Um, so you think about the kind of ceaseless growth of Western power, Western interests, Western ideas, and Western governance around the world uh, after the collapse of the Cold War. Um, and in that process of, of expanding the world, globalizing it, uh, you know, setting Western standards for governance everywhere, we we didn't notice that there were parts of the world that were resistant to it, angrily resistant to it. Um, and that is, of course, the backlash we saw coming out of a small part of the Muslim world, um, but a very angry and very determined part. Um, as we ceaselessly deregulated finance and, and finance capitalism around the world, and as you know better than I do, Andres, that has been the most striking growth. I mean, global trade has grown but it is really capital flows that have, gone, that have gone crazy over the last 20 years. We didn't seem to realize that this was creating certain kinds of uh, vulnerabilities and instabilities. And then you get this small product, the credit default swap, which, which cascades into an enormous market, $45 trillion at its peak, which then takes down the world economy. And now we have this viral speck in a bat somewhere in Wuhan that has morphed into the greatest global pandemic we've had since the Spanish influenza. And when I look at those, I think to myself, 
you know, what's next? Well, we can imagine the outlines of what could be next. Uh, climate change. We continue to develop. We continue to pour carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And we assume it'll all work out. And one of the things I was struck by in, in writing this book was when you talk to the most serious scientists in the world, Joshua Lederberg, the Nobel Prize winning uh, uh, biologist, he said that the great mistake we seem to make is that we assume that, hu that nature is benign and has a, a kind of fondness for human beings and for human life. And he said, the thing we need to understand is nature is neutral. It is a bunch of chemical equations. And if those equations go wrong, it could, it could easily wipe out life on the planet Earth. And he points out that we have asserted dominion over every element of, uh, of the natural environment except viruses, except the smallest of those, these tiny little uh, particles that could destroy the entire human race. And he, and he uh, convened a conference in 1989 because he began worrying about this. Um, when you talk to people who study climate change seriously, they point out you can imagine a set of cascading events that could take place regarding climate that just take us in a different place. You look at the way in which we eat now, the number of countries in the world where the, there is a massive rise in meat consumption, which is then fulfilled by, first of all, enormous amount of farmland devoted to it, which emits huge amounts of greenhouse gases. And then you can only satisfy this by factory farming, which is essentially an invitation for the next pandemic, because you take thousands of animals, crowd them together in unsanitary conditions. You put uh, genetic variations uh, you you you, you um, deselect genetic variations because, for example, with chickens, you want them all to have big fat breasts. And that means that you lose any kind of natural break on the process by which a, a virus hops from animal to animal, gaining strength and eventually gaining the ability to hop from an animal to a human. Uh, that is why we have had SARS, MERS, Ebola, uh, all these, all these uh, zoonotic viruses starting in, in animals, jumping to humans. And so I put all that together and I ask myself, you know, it's almost as though we're driving a very fast race car and we've decided that we're going to do it in unmarked, uncharted terrain. We're not going to worry about seatbelts. We're not going to worry about airbags. We're not going to bother to buy insurance. Every now and then the car blows up. We fix the engine and we get back to, to it and we resolve to drive a little bit more carefully. But soon speed takes over. And, and at the most fundamental level, I think we all have to ask ourselves, is there a different way to do this? Is there a different way for us to develop? We want the dynamism. We want the growth. You and I both come from countries uh, in, in which for many, for, for many decades you had stagnation and then you had growth and you had the alleviation of poverty. So I'm a big fan of growth and dynamism, but I want us to do it in a more sustainable way. I want us to find a way to put some of those seatbelts on, put those airbags on, and, and find a way to recognize that, you know, there's a danger here that you have to plan for, which is that the next crisis could be the last crisis. Thank you, Farid. I think that's a great introduction into the very big issues that... Um that the book is putting on the table. 
Let me begin with one thing you just, uh, you just said. I think that the analogy between the financial blow-ups and the health blow-ups is a helpful one uh, in that, um, as you put it, we're going very fast. We are running some risks. These are low probability events. We tend to underestimate the chances that we will be hit in the face and suddenly it happens. Now, the problem with that analogy is that we've been very bad at dealing with financial risk. You know, I'm a macroeconomist, that's my stock and trade. I've been studying financial crises. Uh, and of course, you know, we hadn't had worldwide financial crises, you know, since the Great Depression, but we had one 10 years ago. We're having one today. But in the middle, we had the Russian crisis and the Mexican crisis and the Latin American debt crisis and the, uh, the East Asian crisis in the late 90s. So the precedent that the financial uh, crises seem to suggest is that as political decision-making uh, bodies or nations were not very good at dealing with those low probability events. What are the chances, do you think, that this shock, the current COVID shock, will be so big that our politicians and our decision makers will say, stop, 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 let's put the foot on the brake. Uh, or alternatively, maybe it'll just be like finance, that we have one crisis, we paper it over, and we take a deep breath, and five years later, eight years later, we have a bigger one. Uh, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic in that respect? I'm an optimist, so I have that, I, and it's temperamental. So I don't, I will not pretend that that piece of it is yeah. entirely <laughs> determined by the evidence. But I think that one can see the outlines of why these things happen. Um, mm -hmm. And you correct me if I'm wrong, Andres, but I notice, as you pointed out, from the 1930s, when mm -hmm. roughly speaking, the most powerful countries in the finance in finance capital put in place a lot of regulations after mm -hmm. the Great mm -hmm. Depression. From the 1930s to the 1980s, you had very few financial crises. Yeah. And then you had the Reagan-Thatcher revolution mm -hmm. and the, the start of the deregulation mm -hmm. of global finance. And you outlined them exactly right. The Latin American debt crisis, the tequila crisis, the East Asian crisis, the Russian mm -hmm. default, the savings mm -hmm. and loans scandal. Yeah, sure. um, so... We, we can see that, you know, now I want to be emphasize because people forget the other side of the point. We got a lot of dynamism and we got a lot of growth. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But the danger is always that that low probability event turns out to be so large that you sacrifice a lot. I think mm -hmm. if you look at the how much the global financial crisis has put us back, uh, it's possibly decades for particularly for the middle class, for people who do not have a lot of savings, particularly because... And again, I'm venturing into your territory. The only solution we seem to have is yeah. low interest rates, which inflates assets, which means the rich do well because the rich yeah. tend to own financial assets. Yeah. The pandemic, I think, um, is likely to produce some some real regula regulation. I use the word metaphorically. Right. If you think about this, if we do it right, most of the countries that really did well uh, in handling this pandemic are countries that failed during the SARS and MERS crises. So Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, yeah. Hong Kong, uh, Japan, all faced a, a series of zoonotic viruses about yeah. 15 years ago. Most of them did badly at it, but they all learned from that failure and they revamped their public health systems. 
and they made a certain uh, set of decisions. And that this is the gold standard of how to handle this mm-hmm. pandemic, which is they acted early on the theory that, you know, better to be safe. Um, they acted aggressively with regard to travel bans, for example, from people with, from China. Uh, and they acted highly intelligently and surgically. None of the countries I mentioned, which are really the best at handling this, did a lockdown. Um, All of them instead did testing, tracing, and then isolating the the potentially infected. Um, In doing this, you actually achieve the the perfect outcome because a lockdown is a sign of failure. You have already failed if the only method you have is this big blunt instrument of crushing the economy. So what the Taiwan vice president who ran it told me, by the way, a Johns Hopkins trained epidemiologist, they, I think they got lucky. He said, um, our strategy was to say, we're going to isolate 1% of the population. They ended up isolating 250,000 people for 14 days. In return for which the other 24 million are able to go about their lives normally. It's, it's, and by the way, Taiwan is a, d- a democracy. This was not done with any kind of authoritarian um, measures. But by doing that, they found a way to achieve really the best possible outcome. Taiwan has had the lowest drop in its GDP of any country around. Now, I'm not as confident that the West in particular can learn because, you know, what I worry about is that there's a lot of it's a combination of inertia and arrogance in the Western world which says we're the best, we, we, you know, we do everything well, we don't need to learn from anybody else. Um, if you look at the countries that have done particularly badly, Andreas, they are the countries that are, tend to be quite smug and have the sense of being special. The United States, the United Kingdom, Brazil, to a certain extent Chile, which has thought of itself as the kind of East Asian miracle in Latin America, Israel, all these countries have done particularly badly because they don't seem to be willing to learn from failure, which is, as you know, one of the primary ways that capitalism is meant to work. Let me stick with the analogy between finance and viruses. Uh, you know, they're both contagious. But now move the conversation onto politics. The world financial crisis 10 years ago was not the only factor, but it was one of the factors that gave us populism, demagoguery, Donald Trump in the US, Modi in your own country, Bolsonaro in Brazil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the political fallout from the financial crisis was gigantic. This crisis will surely also have political consequences, not just business consequences. And there's sort of two views out there. One is, well, this is the kind of crisis in which, you know, we're all vulnerable, rich and poor, white and black, we can all get sick together. You know, people have come together, you know, in my block here in London, people would gather at 8 p.m. every Thursday and applaud the NHS. So the optimistic view is that uh, we come out of this more united. The pessimistic view is that uh, the crisis has affected people differentially. You know, you say in your book that inequality will get worse. And therefore, rather than being in one boat all rowing in the same direction, people are saying, oh, you know, a few got furloughs, I got nothing. And as a result, the trend toward populism uh, will be intensified. Um, And of course, if the latter is true, if populism is in fact strengthened by the crisis, the chances that countries in the West and countries like Brazil or India will in fact mend their ways 
would seem to be lessened. Will populism be a winner or be a loser of this particular episode, Fareed? It is the big, it is the big political question. And I, I, I don't pretend that I can tell you uh, uh, for, with certainty where it goes, but here's the thing I noticed. Um, I think there is no doubt that the net effect uh, of this crisis, uh, of this pandemic, is to massively increase popu- uh, po- uh, inequality. The, the, what you described, the, the uh, demonstrations of solidarity, as you know, are paper thin compared to the massive widening of the gap that is taking place. First of all, it's taking place among nations. The rich nations, particularly ones that can issue debt in their own currencies, yeah. are in a completely different mm-hmm. planet than mm-hmm. the poor countries that will not be able to do that. And they have no ability to spend. Um, the big companies... If I can interject something, sure. I was on a call the other day with a dear friend who used to be the Minister of Finance of Colombia, and I thought he put your point very, very pithily. He said... The European countries and the countries in North America are doing whatever it takes, you know, echoing Mario Draghi. We in Latin America are doing whatever we can afford. And there's a world of difference between yeah, the two, yeah. right? That's right. That it, it echoes in a way that, that I love that line because it echoes the line in Thucydides' Peloponnesian War and the Melian Dialogue where he says, the strong do what they can, the weak do what they must. Um, And we are back in that kind of world. But then think about companies, you know, take my own book. Um, Book book sales are actually up uh, around the world because, believe it or not, there are some people who are not spending all their time on Netflix. They are reading more. Um, So this is one of those industries that has actually been positively affected by COVID. But here's the difference. Amazon was 30 percent of the book market in the United States when COVID began. We don't know for sure, but it looks like it's something like 60% of the book market now. It has literally doubled its market share. It's 100% now, of my book market. <laughs> that, that, and, that is happening, and that is happening in company after company. The big ones with large diversified operations, either geographically or in terms of product lines, with strong brands, with deep lines of credit, they're doing well. Right. The mom and pop grocery store, the mom and pop uh, hardware store, those are doing badly. Um, and then you look at human beings. Those of us, Andres, who can work digitally um, are really truly blessed because we have had inconvenience. This is, I would be much, I would much prefer to be in that auditorium at the LSE and actually see the people who I'm talking to. Um, but this has advantages. As you say, you're getting people from around the world. But for anyone working in restaurants, hotels, cruise ships, uh, parks, uh, shopping malls, retail. This is the Great Depression. Work has simply disappeared. And that inequality is surely going to have a huge impact. The place where I'm not sure where it'll end up um, is, is this. The global financial crisis, you're absolutely right, had the peculiar effect, uh, despite the fact that it was a crisis caused largely by the irresponsibility of the private sector, it produced a move not left But right, you ended up almost everywhere with right-wing populism doing well. I think that this pandemic, because it really feels like one of those acts of God, where, you know, people must look at their lives and say to themselves, I am in this position for no fault of my own. I didn't take on excess debt. I did not manage my business irresponsibly. I, I was not, you know, I was hardworking in my job and I am unemployed. 
it, it is probably a place where people feel this is where government steps in. This is where we need collective action. So I could imagine that we end up with much greater inequality and therefore a push for governments to do something about that inequality. So I think you are likely to see a much more expanded role for the government, uh, which will, by the way, have a mixed, you know, there will be a loss of efficiency and there will be all kinds of things. Uh, I think there's a way to get it right. As you know, I, I, I'm a fan of the Northern Europeans and, and, the, and particularly the Danes because they actually combine very strong free markets with very strong social protections. But it's a very difficult combination to achieve. Um, and what's more likely to happen is we will move in a more traditionally social democratic direction. So I think there's the, the jury is out in what direction we will go, but there's no question that this rise in inequality is going to have a long-term effect. It will probably shape the next generation of politics. Yes, the Danish model of flexicurity is, I think, what you have in mind. It's, um, it's a great combination. It's not easy to sell politically. When I was a minister in Chile, I advocated Danish flex security for the Chilean labor market. I'm afraid I was alone in the cabinet making that case. We didn't get very far. In your book, Fareed, you also talk about trust. It seems that trust has been very important in this crisis. As you hinted a minute ago, countries that are high trust societies seem to have done well because government says do something and people follow. There's a different kind of trust, which is very much related to the phenomenon of populism, is you know, trust in elites, trust in experts, trust in science. And again here, one can imagine the crisis playing itself out in two different directions. On the one hand, you know, scientists uh, have been re-empowered. You, you know, Donald Trump, uh, Boris Johnson were having press conferences flanked uh, by people in white aprons because science has a credibility that politicians can, you know, can only hope to have. On the other hand, as you point out in the book, science uh, does not have all the answers, particularly in a new phenomenon uh, such as this pandemic about which we really knew quite, quite little. So another race is, is, is unfolding. Um, sometimes I think that we'll come out of this with uh, you know, new respect for expert knowledge, or sometimes I feel that the elites will be further devalued. I will confess that I have a particular interest in this because I'm the dean of a school of public policy, so our business is to train experts. And I'd like to know whether the experts that we train will be in high demand or low demand in today's world, Parade. What do you think? Oh, there's no question they'll be in high demand, but they will be controversial. I think mm -hmm. that's the point, and you yourself wrote a very fine piece about this. Yeah. I, I think the danger here is that uh, we, we turn this into an entirely partisan or polemical issue about mm -hmm. people who don't listen to experts and people who do. Trump makes it easy. Boris Johnson makes it easy. Bolsonaro mm -hmm. makes it easy because they're being stupid. Mm -hmm. um, and they were be, you know, foolishly not listening to uh, simple public policy guidelines that are actually mm -hmm. not even that onerous, like mask wearing. Right. The more complicated question is, is twofold. One, the reality about science, as, as you know, is there is no simple answer that holds forever. We are learning about this illness as we go along. And we need to make the public understand that that, of course, there will be some missteps. Uh, you know, we don't know exactly why, for example, in Asia uh, and in Africa, the virus is just not as lethal. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it may be the inbuilt immunity of those populations. Uh, it may be other factors that we don't understand. And so a certain amount of humility and understanding that science is actually a mode of inquiry, that what you say is we ask the questions, we pose the hypotheses, and we rigorously test them. And that's how you get it. You know, let people in on the, on the secret. Uh, but the more important issue is this has gotten caught up in a great class divide that is affecting almost every country. And certainly my, my sense um, at being in places like Chile and Brazil is that it's as true there as it is in Britain and the United States. Absolutely. We all remember Michael Gove's famous comment uh, during mm -hmm. Brexit. We've had the British public has had enough of experts. Mm -hmm. What he was expressing... Although he's a, walked it back since. He claims now that he, he, he loves experts. Yes. Um, and, you know, but, but Trump said something similar on the Trump, campaign Trump, trail. Trump. And what they were playing to um, is this great divide you know, and resentment among between basically educated elites on the one hand right. and less educated people. And the, and the divide piles upon uh, differences so that what we're talking about is people urban versus rural, educated or college educated versus non-college educated, cosmopolitan versus somewhat parochial, um, people who work in the, in the, tend to work in service industries with their minds, uh, people who work in the regular economy or the material economy with their hands. And that divide is becoming larger and larger. And there is a great deal of resentment among the, the, the less educated uh, class for the more educated class. And I think this is something we have to be very conscious of mm -hmm. and aware of. And when you, you say as a school of public policy, I think one of the things that uh, schools of public policy and, and all of us need to think a lot about is how do we convey information? How do we convey ideas to people who may not have the same training, who may not have the same background? How do you show that you empathize? How do you show that you understand? You know, is there a way to connect these two worlds? Because otherwise, you know, we end up with the situation we're in in the United States and in Brazil and to a, a lesser extent, but to a certain extent in Britain, where this this elite advice is viewed as uh, the kind of uh, the, you know, the the masters of the nanny state telling the rest of the country what to do. And it shouldn't be that way. And so there has to be some better way to interact. And it's also would, would go a long way to solve what has become an increasingly political class divide anyway. Now, I think that's a really key point. And of course, you know, we and the chattering classes and the elites have a bit of apologizing to do. I mean, think of Hillary's comment, you know, the famous comment about the Trump voters being no good, you know, being a bunch of deplorables. That's exactly what elites uh, should not be doing if they want to earn the trust of voters uh, once again. Uh, you know, if I can put in a plug for my school just for, for a second, one of the things that we've been doing is, you know, creating courses, for instance, in political philosophy, because if you're going to be a leader today or a leader in the realm of public policy, people will want to know whether your policy is fair, whether it adds or detracts to people's autonomy or freedom. And typically schools of public policy have worried about technicalities, but not about those kinds of issues which are going to be paramount in people's, in people's minds. But that very takes us into, again, the, the subject matter of politics, because you're absolutely right. Without science, um, we cannot hope to solve problems like uh, contagion and, and pandemics. At the same time, in today's political environment, 
what is fact and what is fiction, what is truth and what is post-truth gets very um, hard to tell apart. You know, if one has watched the, uh, the American debates, Donald Trump does not miss an opportunity to say this virus that we imported from China, right? Um, so Trump is running a campaign in which uh, the virus is the fault of the Chinese, it's not the fault of deregulation or the elites or simply bad luck. So I have to ask you the question, you kind of asked for it in the beginning, uh, um, uh, is the conventional wisdom right? Is the uh, mishandling of the virus and the crisis uh, going to cost Donald Trump the presidency? And if so, what do we learn from that experience? Address, <laughs> um, it, it's a good example of once again of whether, whether does one rely on experts or uh -huh. does one not. <laughs> so I tend to, uh, you know, my, my training is to believe in facts and to believe in expertise. Um, and I think that the polls are going to be roughly right. What I think mm -hmm. will happen is the race will tighten toward the end. Mm -hmm. uh, there will be a greater intensity of support on, for Trump uh, than, we can, than we see right now. But Biden is leading by, at this mm -hmm. point, Biden is leading by the largest lead that any presidential candidate has had over another since 1996, when Bill Clinton had about a nine-point lead over Bob Doe. Um, it has been a fairly consistently, there is no point since uh, early March, when Biden became the presumptive nominee, that uh, Trump has led. Uh, there has literally not been a week that Trump has, has led. Um, and also, it's worth pointing out, that the state polls, which were wrong the last time around because they underestimated the number of non-college educated people, that was the central issue, um, have tried to adjust for this. Mm -hmm. And the X factor in the last election, 2016, which was a very high number of people who said they were undecided and turned out to be secret Trump voters, um, has declined dramatically. It was 12% in 2016. It's 3% now, which is the historical norm. So. Um, you don't have a lot of room for those secret Trump voters right now. People are declaring how they vote. Now, all that said, you know, the, many of the states are within the margin of error. And so, you know, which is three to four percent. Biden is leading by two percent in Florida. He's leading by four or five percent in Pennsylvania. So you could certainly imagine a path uh, where all the brakes uh, move in Trump's direction. That he wins, but if if one were a betting man, one would have to bet on Biden. I hope you're right. I hope that last bet is uh, pays. Let me ask you one last question, and then we'll open it up to to the audience. And I can see lots of questions coming in. Uh, and let me connect the last thing you said with uh, one of the closing chapters in in in, in your book. If Biden is the president. Um, Needless to say, uh, he has plenty of work to do. And you end the book with an invitation for politicians to think big. You know, the, the title maybe is not the last chapter, but one of the last chapters is, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the realists are the best. No, no, the idealists are the best realists. What exactly do you have in mind? Are, are politicians thinking too small and it is time to paint on a larger canvas? What kind of idealism do we need to face these uh, very big challenges going forward? Yeah, I think that that's, that's exactly right. But, but the biggest canvas I want people to start with is to recognize that we have really built an astonishing world since World War II. 
if you think back comparatively and historically, um, you know, think mm-hmm. about what the world looked like before that. 400 years of ceaseless war between the richest countries of the world and endless uh, inexorable poverty in, the, in other parts of the world, which were then subjected to colonialism and domination. And since 45, while it's a mixed record, the basic tra- trajectory has been peace among the great powers, stability, mm-hmm. and a widening degree of shared prosperity. Mm-hmm. So we have gone, you know, the, the millennial goals of the, of the, of the UN mm-hmm. uh, in terms of poverty reduction were actually achieved five years ahead of schedule. Nobody dreamed that that was possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't have to be uh, to believe everything Steven Pinker writes, but to note that mm-hmm. on all these measures, there has been so much progress that the first order of business is to make sure that we stabilize, reimagine uh, and revivify the, the, the world and the systems and structure mm-hmm. that, that allowed that to happen. So what does that mean? That means making sure that a rising China, a rising India, a rising Brazil, are, are integrated into the existing world order so that they don't go and freelance or create their own mm-hmm. uh, set of structures. Obviously, this is most important for China because China is essentially now the other superpower. And if you have a cold war between the United States and China, well, say, go, say goodbye to that open global system, say goodbye to open technological platforms, say goodbye to open trading. Um, and so I worry a lot that we are going down narrow paths of self-interest in a very traditional fashion, almost like the 1930s, and not thinking about the long-term consequence that this will end up undoing and unraveling this extraordinary open world order that we have created. Um, I worry that we are not thinking big enough in terms of tackling things like climate change, tackling things like the dangers of nuclear arms races, mm-hmm. of cyber attacks, of space mm-hmm. races, you know, all these areas, we need to say to ourselves, you know, what is the, what is, you know, what is the most idealistic outcome? A world that lives in peace and harmony and with greater prosperity, and it's actually achievable. Mm-hmm. We've gotten many steps of the way there. Um, it's a very daunting challenge, but why not try it? I mean, and I point out in the book, the strangest thing is that the the statesman who saw the worst of humanity, who went through the Great Depression and World War II. Uh, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, de Gaulle, Adenauer, they came out of it determined to build this idealistic system. Now we have statesmen who have lived through times of peace and plenty and prosperity, who with one pandemic are suddenly turning inward into this narrow, selfish, parochial worldview. And so I'm hoping to to revive that tradition of liberal internationalism that really has changed the world. I think it's a very important and powerful message. I mean, Pinker may not be right in everything, but I think the basic message of Pinker is right. The last century has been a very good century for humanity. And as you point out, since 1945, it's been especially good. So there's a lot at stake. Now, it is not, I, if I had to get the, pro, to guess, sorry, the prospects for that international liberal set of arrangements which gave us the post-45 world, they're going to be pretty hard to rebuild um, because the natural tendency, regrettably today, is, is to look inward. But I guess you know, the, the jury's still out on that one. Let me turn to some of the uh, questions coming in. Um, 
Sarmed Hyder from London, an LSE undergrad, third year. Uh, and um, here's the question. He says that there's massive variation, as we pointed out, in the success of government responses to COVID-19. Is this simply a matter of good leaders or bad leaders? Is it a matter of democracies or non-democracies? Or is some other factor at work? Well, it's a great question, uh, Salman. I, I think here's how I would put it. We are, it is pretty clear what the best response to COVID was, uh, has been. And that is the East Asian countries. Mm -hmm. So if you look at Taiwan, with 24 million people, uh, Taiwan has, I think, eight COVID deaths. It's really astonishing. Mm -hmm. New York State, New York State alone, with 19 million people, has 34,000 deaths. So, th th you know, they're off the charts, as is South Korea, Singapore, Vietnam, Japan. So we know what the right strategy, the gold standard is. Um, now, the countries that were not able to act early aggressively and intelligently in that surgical way that I described, there it gets much more mixed. I think that it's fair to say that Germany probably is the best country uh, in Europe in terms of the way it has handled this, particularly because it's very large. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the US and the UK probably handled it the worst, uh, though Belgium had a very bad outbreak. We're not entirely sure why. There is no correlation between dictatorships and democracies. Mm -hmm. Some of the best performers were democracies. Uh, some of the best performers were dictatorships. Mm -hmm. In general, it's Although a lot it like... it is true that most populists did very poorly. Yes, the populist democracies did particularly poorly. Yeah. Yeah. The, if, as, as with economic growth, what probably happens is you look at the successful dictatorships and make the mistake of thinking that that is a quality of dictatorship rather than a quality of the successful part. In other words, the high-functioning part. Uh, so we look at China, we look at Vietnam, and we look at Singapore, which is sort of uh, authoritarian. But we forget there are lots of Belaruses and Irans and, and you know, places like that that have done terribly. So I would say the most important thing to recognize is that there, there are pathways that have been better than others. But I think that we need to really learn and be humble through this experience. So, you know, the, back to the whole point about medical experts, the medical experts all wanted to do a lockdown. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and as I say, except in East Asia, where they really had gone through this process, I understood the cost of the lockdowns. I think the lockdowns were counterproductive in most third world countries, in most developing countries. So in India, the lockdown, a three week shutdown, probably resulted in more excess deaths uh, from child, you know, child malnutrition alone than all the COVID deaths. So if the goal was to save lives, it was, it was lost. If the goal was not to, is to prevent overcrowding in hospitals where India doesn't have much of a hospital system anyway. So you didn't need to worry about that. So net, net was probably a bad decision. So, you know, it's, that's why you need not just medical experts, you need economists, you need urban specialists, you need everybody pooling in to try to get at the right answer. Um, what we do know in the Western world is we can learn from East Asia. And that, that is something that I think we need to actively start doing, uh, you know, on a number of fronts, but on public health in general. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, this may be one more reason for the kind of somewhat arrogant attitude that some rich countries have 
about um, you know, where the right lessons are. You know, the, the real winner in this particular crisis are small countries, most of which don't happen to be in Western Europe or North America. Um, there's a question here about the US, which is very critical. Um, you know, it says uh, what's striking about the US, and this is uh, from a second year uh, undergraduate student also at the LSE, uh, striking about the US is the pulling out from the WHO, the failure of the CDC, the politicization of reporting and treatment, the disbanding of a particular US task force uh, devoted to the pandemic. How do we understand the failure of a major country, a rich country, a developed country like the US to get things so wrong, so systematically? Is it all Trump? Is it all politics? Or is there something more fundamental at work here? It's a great question. I'd say there are two things going on. One, don't underestimate the degree to which Trump screwed it up. Um, because the truth of the matter is the, the, in the American government is a very complicated, unwieldy enterprise. And this is partly because the United States is in its DNA, an anti-statist country. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you have power distributed around three branches, dozens of federal agencies, and then really located mostly in the, at the local and state level. So it takes a kind of heroic energy uh, and focus for the, for the White House to direct a national strategy. But it has been done. Uh, it was done by Franklin Roosevelt. It was done by Lyndon Johnson. It, it was even done by George uh, W. Bush with regard to things like PEPFAR, the, the, the AIDS in Africa program. It was done by Obama with regard to the Ebola crisis. So it is possible. But Trump fundamentally doesn't believe in governing. I mean, he, he views the presidency as a reality TV show. And so most of the of the things you talked about in, the, in your question were things that really, because the, the one of the most revealing aspects of John Bolton's memoirs is that he would go to the White House every day and as he said, there was, nobody was ever actually doing anything. There was no real policy being implemented. It was literally every day, um, a series of emotional reactions to whatever Trump had watched on Fox News that morning uh, and the issuing of diktat related to it. Um, and so, that piece of it, you know, if you if you don't, if you're not trying to govern, guess what? You're not going to govern. There is a larger piece here, which is that the Republican Party has for 30 or 40 years now set itself to destroy, defund, delegitimize the federal government. You remember when Ronald Reagan comes into office in his inaugural address, he says government is not the solution. Government is the problem. The nine scariest words in the English language. He said, I am from the government and I'm here to help. Imagine if somebody, you know, were to say that today. I mean, that's not exactly how you handle a pandemic. Um, when, when Trump came into power, Steve Bannon, his ideological guru, said the goal of the, of the Trump revolution is the deconstruction of the administrative state. So if, you are, if that is your goal and, and Republicans have been in charge for a large part of that, guess what? Um, you're going to succeed. And I think it really confused the issue of having limited government with having effective government. In other words, what we can we can all agree that you do not want an over overbearing, overwhelming, overpowering state. But what state you have should be respected, well well funded, given independence, and given the capacity to perform at a high level. And 
and you know that's why the interesting thing here is some of the countries that did best actually have small states. The East Asian countries, as a percentage of GDP, spend much less. But then some have big states like Germany. The issue is, can you give them respect, autonomy, independence, uh, fund them properly, and then they'll they'll perform well. The American failure, therefore, is this slightly larger systemic one, which is the the de- delegitimizing of the federal government over the last four decades. But I wouldn't let Trump off the hook too much. I mean, other than the CDC, which was a genuine mistake in sending out the faulty kits, every other error that the question I asked about can be pretty directly attributed to Trump. I think a fascinating question for the future of politics and for the future of democracy is whether after such a massive policy failure, the, tr- the voters will hold Trump to account in the polls or whether in fact there will be enough people out there believing that it's really all China's fault. Um, yeah. We will know, in a week we will know. Uh, something else that the book says that is very important, uh, which you just hinted at, Farid, and I'd like to to uh, stress it and underscore it for a minute, is that one of the lessons of this pandemic is that it is not all about small government versus big government. It is really about effective government. And I mention this because in the aftermath of, of the crisis, as you pointed out five minutes ago, there will be much greater political demand for government to do more. And a big outstanding question is what kind of a government, what kind of a civil service, what kind of public institutions do we need? It's not simply that 40% of GDP will get it right while 30 did not. Taiwan has a small state. South Korea has a fairly small state. Singapore has a fairly small state. I'm not arguing that small states alone are the solution, far from it. Guatemala has a small state and it's not doing very well. But we need to go beyond the old-fashioned 1960s-style discussion of big versus small, because that's not going to take us very far. And you have a very good chapter uh, in the book exactly, exactly on that. But let me return to the international arena. There are several questions that have to do with that. Um, there is um, Isabella Picon from Venezuela, who says... Um, The pandemic seems to be strengthening the tendency for both authoritarian populists and other kinds of governments to turn inward, while, you know, clearly what we need today is more international cooperation. And uh, Andrei Menshikov, uh, I'm not sure where Andrei is from, he doesn't say, says, uh, what is your take, Fareed, on how COVID-19 will change the world order and the balance of power? Are we going to have more international cooperation or more isolation? So there's no question that the first effect of the pandemic was to make nations look inward. And people and countries talked about how they needed to close their borders, how they needed to uh, onshore various kinds of uh, manufacturing industries because they wanted to be able to supply, uh, produce the you know face masks mm. and things like that. Um, And I think what is now happening is we're we're getting to a slightly more sensible place. Because, for example, I think people are beginning to realize the idea of completely upending your economic system so that you can produce face masks is silly. That really what you need uh, is there was a one month or two month period where you were short of these these supplies, after which the private sectors of every country was able to very quickly start producing them. 
what you need is some kind of strategic stockpile of some medical supplies for pandemics, mm-hmm. uh, cotton swabs, uh, glass vials, mm-hmm. face masks, uh, gloves and PPE, things like that. After which the private sector can very easily do it. To, to instead say that the government should fund, you know, an industrial policy that produces all the potential things you will need in the next crisis, which, by the way, is likely to be very different from the last crisis and therefore will require a different set of equipment. Um, you know, let's say the next one is massive forest fires or something like that. You, you're not going to do very much with face masks. So, the, you know, the, the, the much more sensible strategy would be to to rely on the extraordinary power of this international system. After all, we were able to get face masks in the United States precisely because of the global economy, because we were able to import them from, among other places, China for a month or two until you could start producing. But more broadly, as you say, clearly the, the, the optimal solution is more cooperation, more exchange of information, more uh, pooling of resources, and in some areas that's happening, by the way, you know, I mean, that's one of the reasons why you are able to source and get supplies. That's one of the reasons why scientists have been able to collaborate and achieve much faster results than they would have were they operating in isolation. But at the political level, so far, the only place that seems to have understood this correctly is Europe. So the Europeans began in exactly the same way by turning inward, closing their borders, even to one another and blaming each other. The Italians blamed the Germans, the Germans blamed the Italians, everybody blamed the Belgians. Uh, And then there was a kind of uh, moment, a turning point, when they seemed to realize, my God, we are sacrificing the European experiment in in in, in this petty parochialism. And the Germans and the French got together and have decided to do, as you know, what was long considered unthinkable, which is essentially to guarantee the debt of the poorer countries. Now it's a temporary measure, it's an emergency measure, mm-hmm. but it's a big step forward. And so it's quite conceivable that Europe comes out of this crisis sm- stronger, more unified, uh, and you know, with a greater sense of shared purpose going forward. Now, that is clearly where we need to go. What the United States should be doing, and I think would do in a Biden administration, far from getting out of the WHO, is to say, we need a better WHO. We need a strengthened one, with greater resources. But you know what has been the, 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 the flaw in an organization like the WHO is it does not have much authority to ask China for information when the Chinese government withholds it, to go into China when the Chinese government says no. It is dependent on cooperation from uh, governments. And do you know why it's set up that way? Because the United States, the primary architect, did not want the WHO messing around in the United States. So in order to get a better functioning international system, you need the great powers to agree that the rules apply to them as well. And I, I think that's the, that's the Rubicon that we have to cross to get to that next level of, uh, of greater international cooperation. And I do think that people, you know, broadly speaking in the kind of Biden world, and I mean that even about Europeans, uh, understand this. It's hard to do. It's all, you know, there's always going to be the backlash and the, the people are, are, are accusing you of having sold out your country. But I do think we need to try to make steps forward. You, one of the great things I admire about Franklin Roosevelt is that he always understood that he was going to have to make compromises at, 
he never made huge bold leaps forward because his feeling was the important thing is the direction if you can keep moving forward and you make a compromise here you know he he did very little on civil rights because he knew that he needed the south to move forward with the new deal and so in a sense he left it to another to another day so we need to think that way we don't need to win everything i mean and the left i think needs to understand this because there is a certain purity that sometimes takes over the left you know you you cannot advance on every front simultaneously you have to pick your battles you have to pick your victories and so you move where you can and you know live to fight another day on some of the other goals i think that's what you're saying farid is that in the end politics um we have not found a substitute for politics and politics yeah. is about, all about incremental change and uh some people get that and some people don't on the international financial architecture and international organizations i think it is fair to say that they failed pretty miserably um you're right that europe moved to guarantee debts and to provide capital flows to the members that needed it but that has not been true of the world at large uh, you know the imf at the beginning of the crisis said you know emerging markets are going to need something like 2 trillion dollars the imf can lend at most 1 trillion and in reality the imf has lent about 200 billion uh, which is about 1/10 of what the developing world and the emerging countries really needed so one thing that we haven't talked about which but which may be in the making is either a big recession or a financial crisis or a debt crisis in many middle income and developing countries that would be a very very nasty sub product or by product of this crisis and the chances are i think maybe not in every country but i can certainly name a few countries in asia and africa and latin america and the middle east where that's a pretty um it's a pretty high probability event so one you know you were fairly optimistic about the prospects for a biden administration and sort of taking a lead to rebuild uh and strengthening some of these uh, international uh, institutions uh boy i think that's a, that's a very urgent need let me end with But, one question that ends up as cropped up two or three times um uh on the chat list here uh people want to know about china um because uh, as you say in the book and you've mentioned a couple of times this is uh you know back in the 50s and 60s we had a bipolar world then we had a big hegemon the us we're back to a bipolar wor- world you know to deal with pandemics and global warming and all the other big threats we are going to need china will china play ball or will china step back i i think it's the it's the you know trillion dollar question in international relations but i would put it uh, there are two questions the first is will china be willing to rise in a way that integ- that is integrated and supportive of the existing liberal international order and the second is will the united states allow that rise understanding that china will then become even more powerful and influential within this order mm-hmm. um and i think both are important we we do not have a good sense as to whether china is willing to play ball uh there are some indications that it will china i mean let's re- remember has been remarkably responsible in terms of you know things like war and peace uh, and and the transformation there is extraordinary mao's china was basically the biggest rogue regime in the world 
Um, it was funding revolutionary movements everywhere from Latin America to India, the Naxalites uh, to the Shining Path. Um, and I think that that reality uh, has so completely reversed itself that one, one kind of forgets the, you know, that it was only 30 years ago. Um, but China has not invaded a country uh, in, you know, since 1979 with the, the incursion into Vietnam. Uh, it has been fairly responsible. As, by the way, not a track record that any other member of the permanent member of the Security Council can boast of, least of all the United States. So it's not an ins insignificant thing. The Chinese have maintained peace. They have funded U.S. peacekeeping. I mean, U.N. peacekeeping now at the second highest levels or maybe it's even the highest levels. Um, they provide uh, 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 personnel for it as well. They are the second largest funders of the UN. They're trying to get better at, for at foreign aid. So there's a lot going on that, you know, people sometimes forget about. Um, people forget, for example, when they joined the WTO, China made more concessions than any developing country had ever made going into the WTO. Most of what they have been able to achieve that people describe as, as cheating is they use the WTO regulations very, very cleverly. If you go to Geneva, you will see that there is a building that houses the entire Chinese delegation, the WTO. It is probably larger than all the other countries' delegations put together. I may be exaggerating slightly, but they have determined that they will game the system, but they're not cheating as nearly as much as people think. And a large part of what they get, they get because they're a huge country. They're a vast market. And people are willing to make concessions to them. And guess who they do that to as well? The United States. So countries that have very large, prosperous markets are used to getting the rules bent out of shape for themselves. The U.S. does it all the time. The Chinese are doing it now. So we, we have to recognize some of this is about being a very large, dominant country. But some of it is cheating. Some of it is that there, this is inherently an illiberal, non-democratic country that is trying to, for example, cover up a bad human rights record, trying to prevent uh, dissent and dis uh, dissidents, trying to control the economy. So there is that element. But the U.S. has its own issues, which is, as I said, fundamentally, it has to ask two questions. Is it willing to let China have the kind of influence that China, that a second largest economy in the world would have? And is it willing to play by the rules that it wants to set out in the international order? So the United States accuses China of violating the law of the seas treaty when it goes into the South China seas. Absolutely correct. You know who is not a signatory to the law of the seas treaty? The United States of America. The United States accuses countries of being war criminals, of leaders of countries of being war criminals. But the United States is itself not a signatory to the International Criminal Court. If you want to build a true international order that is multilateral, that is democratic, that is more universal, we are going to have to be part of that order and we are going to have to live with, with the, within the rules of that order to a greater extent than we are doing. So there is no question that China poses the largest threat to this, to this order, but the U.S. also poses a threat, either through abdication or parochialism or hypocrisy. And so what I would like to see is a kind of bargain where, you know, the Chinese agree to be more integrationist in their views and the U.S. also agreed to, to live, you know, to, to abandon some of the hypocrisy and the double standards. And so both great powers say, we will, you know, we will also abide by some of these rules of the road. Of course, there are going to be exceptions. Of course, there are going to be anomalies. 
as they have been for the last 75 years. I mean, don't forget, this is a this 75 year period of the building of the liberal international order had lots of anomalies, lots of wars that took place outside of UN uh, uh, sanctioned, unfortunately, several genocides. So what we're looking for is, again, you put it very well, the inevitability of politics. We are looking for incremental uh, compromises, incremental uh, actions, but then move us in the right direction. And so, you know, as I said, temperamentally, I'm an optimist. I have to hope that we can achieve that. We will not achieve nirvana. We are not going to achieve some transformation of the international system and the building of, of you know, world peace. But we could achieve a little more integration here, a little more compliance there. And collectively and over time, guess what? That does actually transform the world. Well, with that optimistic but also realistic message, I'm afraid we're going to have to call it a day. Farid, I'm sure we could carry on for a long time. These are fascinating subjects and uh, you've written a book that many people uh, after listening to this conversation will probably want to go out and buy. The book is called 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World and it is available today, isn't it? Yes. Uh, I want to uh, thank uh, Farid Zakaria for joining us. This has been a fun, a fascinating uh, conversation. I want to thank uh, everybody else. Uh, we had at uh, the very peak uh, over 800 people joining this conversation from all over the world. And on behalf of the London School of Economics and of the School of Public Policy, good afternoon, everyone. Farid, thank you very much. And we will see you again very soon. Bye-bye.